0: Evidence and Answers. Recent statistics show that 60 to 80% of Christian students abandon their faith after four years of college. The church is losing the battle when it comes to our students at the university campus. Why is there such a high dropout rate? What can parents, youth pastors, and pastors do to turn the tide? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Join us now as Pat and Ratio Christi President Corey Miller discuss Christians on the college campus.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, many of us are aware of the statistics regarding the dropout rate of Christian students during their college years. Several surveys reveal that anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of students who profess faith in Christ in high school abandon their faith after four years of college. Well, how can we turn this statistic around? Well, joining us today to address this issue is Dr. Cory Miller, Cory Miller is President CEO of Ratio Christi, a fantastic campus ministry on hundreds of university campuses across the United States and internationally now. He is an adjunct professor of philosophy and comparative religions at Indiana University, He holds master's degrees in philosophy, biblical studies, and in philosophy of religion and ethics, and a Ph.D. in philosophical theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And he is passionate about defending and proclaiming the truth of the gospel in winsome and bold ways. So, Corey, welcome back to Evidence and Answers.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you.
1: Yes. Now, Corey, tell us, uh, why is there such a large dropout rate of the Christian you know, on the public uh, university campus.
2: Well, for one, I'm not certain that the churches—and uh, this is not to blanket on every church—but the the church in general is not equipping its students for university life. And 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 it's not just the university life. That on Friday nights it's party night down, you know, Fraternity Row. That's that's part of it. And uh, they're leaving their youth groups, their homes, their their base and they're going off into a new area of temptation where they're all on their own and exposed to new things, and the temptation is there, but they remember they're a person of conviction, right? Until they go through the first semester and they get doused in uh, economics and psychology and biology and philosophy and physics and whatever field you're talking about, the majority of professors lean left and many are radically left. And so with that arsenal, uh, they're not prepared. They've not been equipped by the common youth pastor to face up with these professors who are predominantly uh, secular and sometimes anti-Christian. And so, you know, what do they do with that? Well, the temptation wants to go here, and the reasons they had for not going there are no longer available. So at minimum, they end up retaining a faith that has a shadow but it is not without impact because of the nature and the force of the university coming at them. We're just not preparing our students for that.
1: Yes, you know, uh, talking to Christian leaders on a university campus, talking to university professors, they've noticed that it's become increasingly hostile for those who hold to a Christian worldview on the university campus. You know, decades ago, Christianity was one of many worldviews that competed for A hearing there on the university campus but today many view christianity as something that is pernicious and even evil and it must be stomped out and often you sense that hostility whether it's overt from a professor or it's just kind of an underlying tone you get there in class would you say that
2: that's right you know christianity by its nature is not anti-intellectual in fact knowledge is at the central core of our belief system Jesus says, here then is eternal life to know God. And somehow, in this last century, the evangelical church in the West has taken a decided turn away from uh, loving God with our heads and retained only the heart and the hands. But if there's anywhere where we need the head deployed, it's at the universities, and we're just not equipped for that. Yeah. Yes, and some professors are just activists at you know, seeking to undermine the faith, uh, someone that I, I actually spoke with on four campuses in February, uh, the atheist philosopher Peter Pogosian, who wrote a manual for creating atheists. And in that book, He tells how employing, he says, employing universities in the struggle against faith is a cornerstone in a larger strategy to combat faith, promote reason and rationality and create skeptics. I met with him. I lectured in his uh, atheist philosophy class, and then we toured together in Utah for uh, four different campuses. But you've got people like him and others that seek to actively undermine faith, and they view faith as a virus, not a virtue.
1: Yes, so describe to us, you know, basically the university culture today and why it poses such a challenge to the Christian going to college. Okay,
2: well, again, barring the temptation area that, that is there, that's one of the edges of the sword to, you know, have a have a solid group of people that you're meeting with, which really underwrites the need for parents to get their students involved in campus ministries wherever they go off to school. Apart from that is the ideological situation. The universities, as many know, were started from a Christian ethos. I mean, Harvard used to require Hebrew for its first year students. Its focus was training pastors and missionaries, similar with Yale, with Princeton, with Columbia. Up for the first two hundred years, up until eighteen forty, you had and virtually all of these were Protestant universities in in America as well, but up until eighteen forty, virtually every president of the colleges and universities in America was a clergyman. Up to 1890, chapel and church attendance were still required at all of them. That's not that long ago. Something happened around that turn of the century on how we lost the universities. For your listeners, they could go to a Christian research uh, institute online or journal and look at my article there. But we lost the universities, we lost it to an anti-Christian ideology. And today, long story short, we have two dominant motifs. In the uh, natural sciences, you have scientific naturalism on the one hand, undermining, you know, miracles, the existence of the soul, free will, uh, the afterlife, and so forth. And then on the other hand, you have postmodern cultural Marxism or relativism in the humanities. And so you have these unholy alliances between the sciences and the humanities, both of which have problems with each other, but they stand lock, stock, and barrow in their secular outlook in undermining the Christian worldview. And they're happy to accept our children. I mean, secularists have found a brilliant way, Patrick, to get Christian parents to pay for the apostasy of their own children. It is the universities. They'll take our tuition dollars and they'll take our children. But then they put a block on for uh, Christian, potential Christian faculty, conservative Christian faculty. Michael Bloomberg, former presidential candidate in the Democratic Party this year, said that conservative Christian faculty are a dying breed in academia. And it's absolutely true. These gatekeepers don't want to hire evangelical Christians. And so if parents aren't preparing them, and if churches aren't preparing them, then parents are spending 18 years of blood and sweat and money and love just to, as the proverb says, train them up in the way they should go, and when they get older, they won't, or actually they will, become part of the machine. We have got to focus on equipping them and getting them involved in campus ministries that will help them not only survive, but thrive.
1: Yes, let's talk about scientific naturalism. Uh, let's let's expand on that a little bit. Tell us what that is and how that poses such a challenge, you know, to the Christian worldview.
2: So, their naturalism. If you take someone like Carl Sagan, who said that nature is what everything is, was, and ever will be. It's it's just whatever's reducible to chemistry and physics. Anything that is not describable in third person terms doesn't exist or we don't really need to really give it any credibility. So everything has to be describable in third-person description. It has to be a, a science. That's why every department now wants to label itself a science, whether it's political science, which was never part of the sciences for 2,500 years. That was part of ethics. Whether it's psychology here next to me at Purdue University, the Department of Psychology is now called the Department of Psychological Sciences. Why is that? Because after the Enlightenment, If you weren't a scientist or if you weren't engaged in the sciences, well, did you have an intellect? Were you intellectually viable? So Harvard professor Steven Pinker, who is a neo-atheist and professor of psychology at Harvard, where we started out, For Truth, For Christ, and the Church was the motto of Harvard. He wrote a a best-selling book last year called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress where he says basically religion fouled everything all up. It was the dark ages. It's always been blind in its faith. But we're talking about reason. We're talking about playing with the big boys now. These people rule academia. And if science is all there was, is, or ever will be, because nature is all there is, was, or ever will be, then that shoots down the Bible for biblical revelation. It does massive destruction to ethics. Justice isn't something you can taste or smell or feel or hear, for example. But so much in our culture puts the emphasis on science as the be-all, end-all of knowing reality. And that's only part of the picture. But uh, you can't have a resurrection of Jesus if miracles aren't possible. And miracles aren't possible if there is no God, of course.
1: Right. And science and the scientific method becomes the determination of truth. And so the Christian is caught here saying, am I going to believe the world of science, you know, which is supposedly facts, or am I going to hold on to my Christian faith? Genesis, miracles, the creator, resurrection, which is the world of faith or often labeled mythology. Which one am I going to hold to? And it's presented as if, well, if you have a brain, you're going to pick the world of fact. And that's how the Christian, I think, finds themselves in that dichotomy there in the in their brain, trying to see how they can put the two together when they seem completely contradictory.
2: Right. And for your listeners, we can go to our website, roshachristi.org, and look at the Apologetics training on faith and science, and we've got several uh, videos there. But science is not opposed to faith. In fact, the early scientists from all the sub-disciplines, the major thinkers in the sub-disciplines, were Christians, like Gregor Mendel in genetics or Pasteur in bacteriology or Robert Boyle in chemistry, Linnaeus in taxonomy, uh, Newton in physics, Maxwell in electrodynamics. All of them were card-carrying Christians. Uh, Somehow there was a philosophy that came in, an atheistic philosophy, became a philosophy of science, and Christianity was viewed as faith. That's not the case at all. As I said, the heart of our worldview is it requires knowledge, and the reason why the universities developed in the first place has a much better explanation because the world began with mind and not matter. And, you know, the university had unity in having theology at the hub, and all the sub-disciplines or the disciplines were like spokes bleeding out from the hub, and those were the diversity, and you had unity and diversity constituting the university because theology or the study of God was at the center, and it made, it, it made sense, it unified the whole of the fields of knowledge. So yeah, Christianity is not antithetical to science. Science owes its existence to the emergence of Christianity.
1: Yes, stated it well. It's the Christian worldview that gave birth to the sciences and it was the ground, the fertile ground that allowed it to grow and flourish. Christianity and science were allies, let's say, for hundreds of years. It's only in recent times, you know, have they been made to look like enemies or foes, incompatible, just as you're saying. Well, you know, Corey, we don't hear a lot of sermons or youth seminars, youth conferences speaking on these kinds of topics, and this is exactly the kind of issue that we need to be preparing our teens for.
2: That's right. And again, I think the churches, there are resources for them to be able to equip their students, and parents need to be equipping their students, because if they don't, Someone will educate them. But Rasho Christi serves to assist in that way and to provide a place for students to go and to grow, not only to survive but to thrive. Our vision is thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today, changing culture tomorrow. So if you look downstream and you want to find out why there's so much pollution and you want to clean it up, You don't start with the symptom downstream you go upstream and that upstream is the university so we encourage partnerships with churches and you know with parents and other ministries so that we can reclaim the intellectual voice of christ which is the university campuses the most influential institution of western civilization
1: yes a lot of youth ministries i'm I'm speaking you know in big generalities here now i know there's a lot of exceptions to this but spend a lot of time. They think that, well, youth aren't interested in this kind of heavy, speaking of science and scientism and apologetics, but really they are. And if you come to our Evidence and Answers youth conferences, you'll see uh, hundreds of teens hungering, wanting to see, does the Bible have answers to Darwinism and the things that I am learning here on the high school and university campus? But wouldn't you say there is that hunger amongst our Christian young people?
2: Yes. And shockingly, I find that a lot that are in ministry want to demure when they hear about that kind of a statement. They think that students want relationships. They want authentic relationships. They want to see lives lived out. Yes, yes, yes. That's all fine. They do. But they actually want answers. In fact, Patrick, the most recent Barna, George Barna full-length book on this called Reviving Evangelism. In that book, they go out and interview non-believers and ask them this question, what most increases interest in Christianity for you? And 44% of them, get this, they had 13 options to choose from, 44% of them chose one single answer, better evidence to support it. And when they asked that same question of practicing believers, what do you think non-believers would say? Only 12% picked that one, which is to say that the church by and large today is out of touch with where the world is at. The world wants answers. Apologetics is back in demand right now, and not to mention it is actually a command right now and always has been in 1 Peter 3.15. So your ministry is certainly relevant to this.
1: Yes. Well, tell us about uh, the postmodern cultural relativism that you say dominates Mm -hmm. the campus as well. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So if we can think of modernity in terms of the Enlightenment, that period, you know, between 1650, 1800, roughly, where you have the modern period, or you might call it uh, liberal classical liberalism, or you might call it the Enlightenment. Postmodernism is a reaction to modernity, and modernity was about the quest of knowledge. And it was about the quest of scientific knowledge primarily, and the hope for certainty. Well, the hopes were dashed at the end of the Enlightenment, people call it a failure of the Enlightenment, because certainty was not to be had outside of math, logic, or introspective philosophy. But post-Enlightenment thinkers then not only reject the pre enlightenment views of reality like God, for example, but they also reject the Enlightenment thinkers God, if you will, and that is empirical science as the be all end all of knowledge. Postmodernists say that knowledge is but a social construction of reality. In other words, there is no such thing as knowledge. If there is truth at all at all, you can't know it after the final philosopher of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant. You can't know anything even if there is something there to know. We're trapped behind our ideas or we're trapped behind our language or or something else. But postmodernism, it's hard to define but it can be characterized by relativism. Now, out of that period of postmodernism and so we've got a ton of relativism in ethics today um, in the universities. You, you can't teach value theory you can't you can't teach objective moral truth because it's not science for one but everyone talks about it being in terms of the will to power right well what's emerged from postmodernism was this character named Karl Marx and that ended up into new marxism or cultural marxism and today we look at this in terms of a social justice kind of ethic identity politics where people are identified in groups, either as oppressors or oppressed, victims or victimizers, bourgeois or proletariat, the ruling class or the working class. And that's how people are divided up, those two things, oppressors and oppressed. And. You're starting to see this pervade even over the sciences, over the hard sciences. This is phase two in the universities now. We got taken over by phase one, scientific naturalism. Phase two, even the naturalists are shaking their boots now. Steven Pinker that I mentioned earlier is concerned about this. Jordan Peterson puts a lot of attention on this as, a nas- as an international uh, thinker. Peter Boghossian, the atheist that I quoted a little while ago that I, I could debate and his goal is to take away people's faith. Well, he's done with that now. He told me his new goal is to defeat critical theory and social justice. He's done with the atheism-theism debate. And he and I toured four universities in Utah and we're looking at four in Texas in the fall on viewpoint diversity, how social justice and identity politics are killing academia. And so even the hard sciences now are starting to capitulate to some of these postmodern ideas, and to this critical theory, which is an idea that really is inconsistent and incompatible with the gospel, but you're starting to see it infiltrate campus ministries, churches, and even seminaries. So if if your people wanted to get uh, up to speed on what this is, we've got a free downloadable booklet. It's about 30 pages, engaging critical theory in the social justice movement. Just go to roshiochristi.org engaging critical theory in the social justice movement. But there's scientific naturalism on the one hand and postmodern or critical theory on the other hand in the universities. And in either case, it's an unholy alliance locked up against Christianity.
1: Yes, you know, and the pressure in the classroom to, you know, go along with these ideas is also quite tremendous. I know that the students, uh, if you don't accept darwinism in the sciences it's kind of like you're ignorant you're still in your backwoods sunday school classroom get with it you know and if you hold to some kind of absolute truth and absolute standard of morality and ethics a hey, you're back in the in the dark ages let's get with it you've lost your brain kind of you're, you're kind of meant to feel inferior or, or ignorant if you don't hold to these ideas that you're talking about
2: Right. Uh, you know, people think that peer pressure exists only as a student in middle school or high school. That's not the case. It exists in academia, too. If you don't toe the line, you're looked at as stupid. In our culture, we're, we're moving rapidly toward a shame based culture. And because we don't value viewpoint diversity anymore, you end up in academia with a political orthodoxy, if you will. So we don't, we don't hire, let's say, uh, conservative thinkers or Christians that are robust Christians anymore in, in the academy, so you end up having one view. And all the students are getting taught these things, too. And all the other professors, you, you want to shut your mouth. You don't want to go against what is politically orthodox rather than having a heterodox academy where you can debate truth. These are social justice universities now where there's a political ideology that if you don't go along with it, you are you know, in trouble.
1: Yeah, so the Christian student who may hold to a Christian worldview is going to find themselves really in the minority, often alone uh, on a university campus there. I remember I'd be in a class of 200, and I felt all alone because I'm the only one that had a Christian position when it came to ethics, or can you know reality, or truth, or the existence of God. Man, often I felt like, gee, I'm the only guy in here that believes in this kind of stuff, and I think that's why you're saying it's so important that a Christian be involved in some kind of campus ministry or Christian fellowship there on the university campus, because it can be a lonely place you're holding to these convictions.
2: Right, and even as I said, some of these false ideologies are starting to slip into various campus ministries, as they are churches and seminaries, and it's becoming very difficult to navigate there. As I mentioned, you know, knowledge is but a social construction of reality. Well, oh, think about identity, identity politics. Uh, I am gay. I am a female trapped in a male 's body, or maybe i 'm a dragon or or something like that. right? Who are you to judge me when I feel like this is my identity trapped in my biology or something like that? and that stuff has become believed by those in the ruling class, and you get shamed if you think that your biology defines your, your sex and your gender. You know, when we think about the, the arsenal of firepower at the university and what students are headed for.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call. That number locally is 483-0586. Or you may contact them through the Evidence & Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download so be sure to share our website with those around you evidence and answers is grateful for our key sponsor Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions to learn more visit them online at hcmlp.com. join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ that's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. <laughs>